Well, hey everyone, my name is Norton and this is part 5B of You Lost Me at Leviticus. So the B means that this is the extra content message. Uh, in this series, we're walking through the ancient book of Leviticus and in part 5, we explored the tragic story of Leviticus chapter 10. And so today we're going to explore some extra questions and some extra issues that we didn't get to when we talked about that. And um, I should say, if you've been listening to this every week, uh, then you just need to pat yourself on the back right now. Great job. Uh, we've made it through the first third, maybe a little farther, of Leviticus, and that is no easy task. Um, because I, I think this is a, a fascinating and a compelling book, and I think there's so much for us to learn from it. But I also know it's not always easy to read, and we've been covering a lot of ground, and I'm throwing a lot of information at you, and I've been thinking about this for a couple of years now, so it, for you, has probably been overwhelming, and if you've listened to every message so far, that means you've listened to over six hours of me talking, and so I don't take that lightly, right? I, I just, I want to let you know I'm spending hours and hours um, every week reading and thinking and reflecting and writing and praying and, and condensing and organizing <clears throat> information. And, and my hope has always been that whatever your faith is right now, whatever your understanding of God is, whatever your beliefs and practices are, that this would help you go deeper, <clears throat> that this series would help you take steps forward in your journey of faith and in every area of your life. So, all that to say, thank you uh, for your investment of time so far. Now, today I want to make a couple of connections between Leviticus chapters 8 through 10, uh, which is kind of one big chunk, and some things in the New Testament. So we'll do that in the first half, and then um, in the second part of the podcast, I want to think more deeply about this tragic story in Leviticus chapter 10 and what it says about priests in general, and what that means for all of us. So, uh, first, two connections to the New Testament that I want to just bring to your attention or make you aware of. In chapter 8 of Leviticus, we read about this seven-day dedication and consecration ceremony. And in the, the last supplemental podcast, we, we talked all about connections here to Genesis chapter 1. How Genesis chapter 1 is all about God creating the world in seven days. He brings order out of chaos. And then Exodus and Leviticus are essentially describing God's recreation project, God reordering the world. And so uh, there's this symbolism in this seven-day ordination ceremony that's described in Leviticus 8, and, and that wouldn't have would not have been lost at all on ancient Israelites. So we looked at all of that in in part four B of this, um, and then when the seven days are done, Leviticus chapter nine verse one says, "On the eighth day." So this is day eight. The seven days of ordination are done. Now we're on the eighth day, and this is going to be opening. Day. This is the first day that people and the priests are coming into the tabernacle. The eighth day in Leviticus 9, it's, it's described like a new beginning, a new creation. This is a new start, a new week has begun, and, and all of that is symbolic of God has created a new people, and this new people is going to do a new work in the world. They're going to bring God's new order into the world. They're eventually going to live in the promised land, and they are going to there live as a light to all the other peoples and all the other nations around them. Now, that phrase, a light to the nations, that doesn't come actually from Exodus or Leviticus. It comes from later in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible from the book of Isaiah, which is written much later. But you still see this re references to this idea all throughout the Torah, throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Uh, one quick example, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, Deuteronomy is a book where Moses basically just summarizes all the laws and instructions that have been given to the people before they go into the promised land. 
And uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse 6, he's talking about all of these rules and instructions and the laws and the commandments. And he says this, observe them carefully. He's talking to the people. For this will show your wisdom and your understanding to the nations who will hear about all of these decrees and they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And then Moses goes on to talk about how these people from other nations are going to see how the people of Israel know God, know Yahweh, and understand Yahweh, and live under Yahweh's rule, and these laws are good, and that that will impress something upon all the other nations. So there is always this eye toward a bigger mission for Israel. It's not just about Israel living with God. It's about Israel living with God and being an example to all the other people about what it means to live with God and live under his rule. So this eighth day is huge. It's the first day that the people are entering into the tent of meeting and they are able to draw close to God and they are able to live with him and welcome him into their presence and begin to live out his mission in the world. Seven days of recreation, right? That's the ordination ceremony, recalling the story and the work of Genesis 1. And then a new beginning on the eighth day. Now, let me show you something going on in the New Testament, because this is fascinating. It's 1,300 some odd years later. And there's the Apostle John. His name is John. He's Jewish. He's a follower of Jesus. And he writes a book about Jesus' life. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And John had become a disciple and follower of him. And and so he writes this book about Jesus' life. And it's different from the other three books that we have about Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they all have some similar stories and, and a little bit of a similar approach. But John has some different things, some profound truths that he wants to communicate about Jesus and what God was doing for Israel in Jesus and for the sake of the whole world. And so look at how John starts his book. This is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this phrase, in the beginning, does that ring any bells? Any idea where that comes from, right? Of course you know where it comes from. It's exactly the same way that Genesis 1 starts, in the beginning. This would be like me starting a sermon by saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? And any American would immediately know that I am using words from the Declaration of Independence and whatever I am about to say is recalling or referencing or bringing in ideas from that ancient document. So John is beginning his whole book by saying, in the beginning. In other words, I have a new creation story to share with you. It's going to be like a Genesis 1 story. And it's going to be like that tabernacle story from Exodus and Leviticus that recalled Genesis 1. It's going to be a a seven-day story of God's new creation and new work. And a few sentences later, John says in chapter 1, God came to live with us to dwell with us, to reside among us. The word he uses there is to to tabernacle, if we can turn it into a verb, to tabernacle with us. In other words, just like God did when our people were living in the wilderness and he told us to build this tabernacle so he could reside with us and live with us and be with us and dwell with us, He is now doing that again, John says. He came to dwell with us in the person of Jesus. You see, John is giving all kinds of hints to his fellow Jews, that's mainly who he's writing to, that he is telling a new 
creation story. Jesus is going to be at the center of this story, but it's a new creation story. And then look at what John does in the rest of his book. If you know much about the book of John, he describes seven different signs or miracles that Jesus does throughout his ministry to show us or to demonstrate to us that he was sent from God. Now, Jesus does more than that, but John just focuses on seven. Why? Well, seven's important, right? It's symbolic. And so, in fact, the very first one is Jesus changing water into wine at a wedding, right? Most of us know that story. At the very end of that story, chapter 2, verse 11, John writes this, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, by the way, Galilee was the part of northern Israel that was known as Galilee of the Nations. Because there weren't as many Jews living there, there were other people from other nations and other people groups that had moved there. So it was known as a more Gentile place in Israel. It was called Galilee of the Nations. And this is where Jesus does, John tells us, his first sign in this place among the nations. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now that word glory, I mean, that is a huge concept in the Torah. Uh, The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, that was all about God's glory. That's where God's glory resided with the people. And John is basically saying like, hey, I'm just going to share with you seven signs that Jesus did to reveal his glory. Right to, to show us that this is God living with us. To show anyone and everyone who came into contact with Jesus that if you want to meet with God, if you want to go live with God, if you want to go to the tabernacle or the temple to experience God and his glory, the place to actually go is Jesus. He is the fullness of God's presence now dwelling with us. So John describes these seven signs, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but right, the the number seven is hugely symbolic. John also has in his book seven I am statements that Jesus makes about his identity. I am the bread of life, he says at one point. I am the light of the world. There's seven of these. By the way, remember bread in the Torah was all about God's provision for the people to feed them, light. Or fire was about God's guidance and God's glory. So when Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world, he is continuing to point back to God and who he is. So there's seven signs. There's seven I am statements. And then in John's book, he also describes Jesus attending Jewish feasts seven different times. And he highlights this. He'll say, Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover. This was the second time he went to Jerusalem for the Passover or for the Feast of Tabernacles um, or or for these different Jewish feasts. And so John is, is, and this wouldn't have been strange because that's what most good Jews did at that time. They would celebrate these feasts. But John is communicating in the very subtle, but if you're Jewish at that time, I'm not Jewish now, so I often miss this, but if you're Jewish at that time, this would not have been subtle at all. John is communicating that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah who is doing the work of bringing God's new creation into the world. And there are all these sevens to indicate that this is a creation week and the seventh feast that Jesus attends is Passover and it's his last Passover in Jerusalem when he is arrested and then he's tried and then he's crucified And then he is buried in the tomb. And then look at what John says in chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance early on the first day of the week, right? We now call this Sunday, Easter morning, right? Easter Sunday morning. That's the eighth day for Jews. And John is saying, it's the eighth day. 
It's the first day of a new week. This is when Jesus rises from the grave. This is when God's new creation is beginning. This is when God is going to create a new people, a new Israel made up of followers of Jesus who will carry this new creation and this new order into all of the world. Do you see all of the connections here, all of these things happening in all of the symbolism? And there's more I could have shared with you, um, uh, but we would run out of time. But do you see what John, John is weaving this story together to communicate something that is happening? Now, you might be asking, well, what happened to the new order or the new creation that Israel was supposed to bring into the world? I mean, that's what we've been talking about in Leviticus. The old order is the Egyptian order of slavery and oppression and all those things. And, and Leviticus is going to show, uh, or the, the people of Israel are going to show the world a new order, a, a community that lives under God's order. Well, what happened to that? Why does Jesus have to come into the world 1,300 years later and, 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 and do that? Did it not work the first time, right? And this is a really big theological question, and, and the whole rest of the Old Testament unpacks this. The historical books are reflecting on this. The prophets come and they're reflecting all on this. So I don't have time to, to try to offer a long answer, but I'll give a really short one. Israel falls short of accomplishing their mission to bring God's new order into the world. And so Jesus comes to accomplish it for them. Isaiah, you see this in Isaiah that where Israel is called the servant of God. They're the servant because they're bringing God's love and God's holiness and God's grace into the world, but then they fail as a servant, and so another servant is raised up to accomplish this mission, and it's a suffering servant. Or, or as scholar N.T. Wright would say, Israel, you see in the Old Testament, Israel is called to be the people who will bring God's message of rescue. He delivers them and rescues them from Egypt. They will bring God's message of rescue into the world, but it becomes clear that the rescuers who are going to bring the message of rescue need rescuing themselves. The people who are to bring the message of hope and redemption and new creation end up needing that message of hope and redemption and new creation as well. And so Jesus comes to fulfill all of that for Israel. He is the Messiah for Israel, but it's not just for Israel. It is for the whole world. Now, there's one other uh, fascinating story, um, New New Testament connection, uh, with this tragic story that's told in Leviticus chapter 10. Um, after the story of Leviticus 10, remember Nadab and Abihu, they do the strange fire and then they suddenly uh, die. Um, I won't go back through all that. But in the New Testament, after Jesus rises from the grave, that's the end of John and the end of the gospel account, sort of tell that, that story, he gives this mission to his followers. I've risen from the grave. I'm bringing new life and a new order and a new kingdom into this world. And so take this good news. That's good news. (laughs) Death has been defeated and a new kingdom is coming. That is good news. Take this good news that I have come to bring this kingdom and salvation and hope and new life to all people. Take this good news into all the world and live as a new people who will be witnesses to this good news, who will embody this good news. And his followers go do that. And the book of Acts tells their story of this new group of people living out this calling to be God's people, to be Jesus's followers that embody God's way into the world. And the book of Acts, in some ways, is kind of like Leviticus. Now, the form is totally different. (laughs) Leviticus is ancient rules and instructions and rituals and acts is all of these interesting narratives that are a lot easier to read. But both of them are the story of how the new people of God will be witnesses to his new order in the world. And in Acts chapter 5, just a few, you know, 
moments into the story, at the very beginning of living out this mission as followers of Jesus, there's this crazy and tragic story about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And, and you can go read it for yourself. We don't have time to, to do it today. But, but Ananias and Sapphira, they do something kind of dumb. They try to deceive the leaders of, of, of this new movement, and they lie. And they're struck dead. And it just jolts you when you're reading the book of Acts. What in the world? In the same way that the Leviticus 10 jolt story jolts you when you're reading Leviticus. Like, what in the world happened? These two people did something dumb and then they were struck dead. And I don't know why they would be struck dead just for doing that and what's going on. And what's fascinating is that the story in Acts 5 is interpreted just like the story in Leviticus 10. It's a reminder that the mission that Jesus gave us is serious. It's a reminder that flawed humans are going to be central to this mission, and they are always going to do things that might threaten or undermine, and even at the very beginning of the mission, derail the entire thing. But it doesn't. And it won't. Because God will not be deterred. The mission will keep moving forward. Now, we get deterred when we read these two stories because they're strange. You know, Acts 5 and Leviticus 10, they're strange and we don't understand. And why would they die because of this? And did God actually kill them? And we're trying to make sense of these stories. But don't miss the bigger narrative, the bigger lesson here. God is doing something new on both occasions, Leviticus and Acts. And there's an immediate threat that the people of God who have been given the responsibility and chosen to carry out this mission, there's a threat because they have the capacity to screw it up totally right there in the very beginning. And it's almost as if both stories are reminding us that the mission will move forward with a sense of profound humility and profound hope. It's humility, because if it is dependent on us as humans, if it's dependent on us, we are often going to fail. And there's a deep sense of humility in that realization that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm, I'm not going to fulfill the mission perfectly. If God's, if all of God's desires and the mission are resting on my shoulders, it's going to fail. That is humbling. There's a sense of humility in that real, realization. But there's also hope. Hope that it's not dependent on me. That it is not dependent on us. That God allows us and invites us to play a central and an important role. But ultimately, God will be the one who will bring his new creation and his new life and his redemption into the world. Humility and hope, those are always our responses to what God is doing in us and through us. And I think that's the message of Leviticus 10 and Acts chapter 5. Now, let's uh, switch gears and let's go back and talk about these priests in Leviticus chapter 10 uh, for the second half of this podcast. But before we do that, first, a word from our sponsor. Uh, I'm kidding. We don't have a sponsor. <laughs> There's only four of you listening to this. Let's be honest. We don't need a sponsor for this. So let's just jump right in. Um, in the second part of our discussion today, uh, let's talk about the role of priests in the Old Testament, because uh, that's really what chapters 8 through 10 in Leviticus are all about. They're about these priests, right, who are ordained and dedicated and consecrated and begin to live out this role. And this is not just interesting historical stuff. I mean, I, I hope it's interesting, and I hope for those of you who like it, history, it's historical and, and it's helpful um, but I think this is really important, and I think it's relevant for everybody listening. Because in some way, we are all called to be priests. You are called to be a priest. 
A priest is someone who introduces others to God. A priest is someone who embodies God's presence and God's blessing to others. If you are a follower of Jesus, the New Testament says you are a priest. We briefly touched on this last time. Listen to these words. Peter, the apostle Peter says to followers of Jesus in the first letter he wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Do you recognize that language? That's straight from Exodus, Exodus 19. We read that at the very beginning, right? This is Exodus language, but Peter's talking to followers of Jesus. And in fact, many of the followers of Jesus he's talking to now are Gentiles. They're not even Jews. They didn't read this. They didn't grow up with any of those customs or any of those cultures. That's not part of their heritage at all. But he is now saying that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have inherited the promise and the hope and the calling of the nation of Israel to be God's priests in the world. He goes on. He says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful or marvelous light. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been saved from darkness into light, and now you are to be a light to other people. That's what it means to be a priest, to be a light to other people. And so practically speaking, I mentioned this last time, To be a priest means to speak God's words, to show God's will, and to share God's grace with others. Now, real quick, maybe you're listening to this podcast and uh, you're not a religious person, Um, or or maybe uh, you're religious, but you're not a Christian. Maybe you're Jewish. Maybe somebody sent this to you and said, hey, this is interesting. We're looking at you know this book from the Torah, Leviticus, you know, Vaikra. That's what you maybe have heard it called. And uh, this is interesting. You should listen to it, right? Um, or maybe you're a spiritual person and uh, you would not call yourself a Christian, but you would say you're spiritual. And that's totally fine. That is okay. My hope has been that these podcasts and this study would benefit anyone and everyone. And so I hope that you are learning something new about the Bible, particularly this, this, this crazy book of Leviticus. But here's the deal. I'm guessing you would not be listening if you weren't pursuing or desiring a deeper level of spirituality in your life. You certainly wouldn't, make, it wouldn't have made it through you know, to part 5B. That's what, 10 messages now, right? You wouldn't have made it this far. You wouldn't keep listening if you weren't desiring a deeper level of spirituality, a deeper connection with God, a greater sense of wholeness and healing. In fact, you you might not even be a, a Christian, but maybe you have a lot of respect for Jesus, right? You've heard about some of the things he did and some of the things he said, and you have a lot of respect for that. And I would just say, if that's you, then I think you too are called at some level to be a priest, to share your spiritual exploration with others, to encourage others with you to pursue wholeness and healing, to invite others on the same journey that you're on of figuring out who this guy Jesus was, what he did, or who God is, and what it means to have a relationship with God. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, for all of us, think of yourself In the next few minutes, as I talk about this again, think of yourself as a priest. Now, let me give you an image building on, and I said some things about priests. If you've had a bad experience with priests, I I said that in the last supplemental podcast, so that that sort of applies here. But um, let me give you an image for what it means to be a priest in the way Leviticus talks about it, and then how we might think about that in our own lives. Um, In Leviticus... To be a priest is to stand at the doorway of the tent of meeting. This is the picture, the image that we see all throughout Leviticus. Chapter 1, when anyone brings an offering, they are to bring it to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, the word 
Hebrew word for entrance here is just the word normally used for door or doorway. Um, at the tent of meeting, uh, there wasn't an actual door. Uh, there was a big courtyard and there was this wall of curtains or linens all around the courtyard. And so you're outside of that. And then there's one place where some curtains or linens were pulled back. And that was the entrance. That was the portal. And when you walked through that threshold into the courtyard, through that doorway, the priest would be standing there ready to help you bring your offering or your sacrifice to God. The priests stand at the doorway. And all the gifts described in chapters 1 through 7 are brought to the priests who are standing at the doorway. Chapter 8, when the tent and the priests are dedicated and consecrated for seven days, it says the priests must stay at the entrance, stay at the doorway. Chapter 10, when this tragic thing happens to Nadab and Abihu, Moses says to Aaron and his remaining sons, verse 7, chapter 10, do not leave the entrance. Do not leave the doorway of the tent of meeting. Why? Because you're still priests. You still have a role. You still have a calling. You still need to be standing in this place, this place doorway. So the priests, you can physically hopefully see it in your mind right now, the priests stand at the doorway, partly to receive these offerings, right? These people that are bringing gifts, but also, Moses says in chapter 10, verse 10, you need to stand there because your role is to distinguish between the holy and the common. And to teach this to the Israelites. Now, we're going to talk a whole lot more about uh, these two words, common and the holy, over the next few weeks. Because that gets to be unpacked on the rest, you know, the next section of of Leviticus. Um, But just start with this physical image, okay? The common and the holy are like two geographical, actual places. Outside of the tent is the common, inside of the tent is the holy. So outside the tent, everything outside the wall is the common. Common does not mean bad, and it does not mean sinful. Common was just where you lived. Your tent, where you lived with your family, was outside of the main tent of meeting. There's all these tents surrounding it, where all the people lived. It's where their tents were set up. It's where people ate. It's where people slept. It's where people raised their sheep. It's where people lived their lives. This was called common space. But when you went through the doorway to the tent of meeting, you were now in holy space. There was this designated, separated, holy space in the midst of the entire camp, and it was separated by this curtain, and this space is different. This space is set apart. This space is distinguished from common space. And the priests stood at the doorway between the two. The priests navigated the journey for people from common space to holy space. So in the most tangible, physical, geographical way that you can think of it, outside the tent is common space, inside is holy space. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Again, we're going to unpack this more thoroughly over the next several weeks, but here's one way of thinking about this. Common space might be represented as space where you are ignorant of God's presence, right? You're at home doing the dishes. You're playing with your kids. You're repairing the wheels on your cart. You're feeding the goats. You're carving bowls to eat food out of, if you're an ancient Israelite. And God is present in all of those places. We know God is present everywhere. And he's present in all of those activities. But you are not aware of his presence. You're not mindful of it. You're ignorant of it. You're just doing the things of life that you need 
to do. But when you walk over to this tent of meeting and you walk through that doorway with that goat that you're bringing as a gift to God out of gratitude, you are intensely aware of God's presence. He is here in this place. I am coming to bring him an offering. I am coming to celebrate him. I am coming to express my gratitude to him. And so I walked over to this place with this thing to express my gratitude to him or perhaps to offer a different kind of sacrifice to ask for his grace and his forgiveness or to make amends for something I've done. And the role of the priests is to help people make that journey from common life where they are not aware or they are ignorant of God's presence into this space where they have this very heightened and acute aware of God's presence. So if you're a priest, you stand at the doorway between the common and the holy, between ignorance of God's presence and a deep awareness of God's presence. And it is not so that people would come to the tent and stay and live there right? You do not come to the tent of meeting and then just lay down there and live the rest of your life there. Everyone goes back out. Everyone goes back to their homes. They go back to their work. They go back to the details of their lives. They go back to their families. They go back to cooking meals. But perhaps when they go back, they begin to live their lives with a deeper awareness of God's presence not only in the tent of meeting, but in the details of their lives as well. So the priest stands at the doorway of the tent. The priest stands at the doorway of of, of the common and the holy. The priest stands at the doorway in between ignorance of God's presence and a deep awareness of God's presence. And here's how we might pull all of this together. The priest stands at the doorway Between what is and what should and could be. What is is a world without God's ordering. What could be and should be is a world that lives under God's ordering. That's the tent of meeting. What's happening in there is working and and happening under God's meticulous ordering. What is outside of the tent is a world without God's ordering. What could be and should be inside the tent is a world that lives under God's ordering. What is is a life ignorant of God's presence. What could be and should be is a life saturated with God's presence. What is is a world without justice, without compassion, without grace, without healing, without wholeness. What could be and what should be is a world with justice and with compassion and with grace and with wholeness and with healing and with forgiveness and with all those things. You see, outside the tent represents the way the world is. Or we might say the way someone's life is. Inside the tent represents all the world could be and should be under God's rule and order And also represents the way someone's life could be and should be under God's rule and order. And the priest stands at the door between those two worlds. You see, let me get really practical. If you have a friend whose life is chaotic, whose relationships are broken... Maybe their marriage is crumbling. And you see the mistakes they've made. And you see the selfishness that they're wrapped up in. Or you see the stubbornness they keep exhibiting. You see what is. But you also see what could be and should be. You see that if he would just acknowledge the dumb things he's done. You see that if he would just go to counseling, you see if she would just apologize, if she would just admit her stubbornness, you see if they would just stop trying to win arguments and start trying to offer healing. 
you see that if they would just turn to God, then there's a sliver of hope that reconciliation that could happen, that healing might happen, that wholeness might happen. You see what is right now in all of its brokenness and chaos, but you also see what could be and what should be, and you stand at that doorway. And when you stand at that doorway, you plead with your friend, you listen to your friend, you encourage your friend, you tell your friend not to give up hope, you pray for your friend. When you do all of these things, you are a priest. (laughs) And we could apply this in so many areas of our lives. If you're a parent and you see what is in your kid's life, and then you also see what could be and should be, you stand at the doorway. You're a priest. If you lead other people in any form or fashion, you see what is, you also see what could be and what should be. And you're doing everything you can to inspire them, to to coach them, to encourage them towards what could be and what should be, the potential, the opportunity that they have in their lives. And sometimes people respond well, right? And sometimes people do not respond very well. But if that's you, if you are standing in that role in the doorway between what is and what could be and should be, you are a priest. And if Aaron and his sons are any example to us, being a priest is hard. It is a holy calling. It is a distinct calling. And there will be days when you will be filled with deep joy and celebration and hope because people are moving towards deeper awareness of God's presence in their lives towards what they could be and they should be. But there are also days that are humbling and hard days where you feel like a total failure. Have you ever felt that? Of course you have, right? To be a priest at any level is to experience failure. To see people that you love continue to live their lives in self-destructive ways. To see people that you love not be able to see what could be or should be, even though it seems crystal clear to you. So, so let me wrap up this podcast by just sharing with you three things from Leviticus 8, 9, 10 that I think priests need, I think you need, I think I need, I think we need to navigate the failure, to maintain hope, to stand at the doorway, to believe God will continue to use me for his greater purposes in the world, and that maybe some other people in my life might move more towards what could be and should be, and maybe God will have used me to play some little role in that. So first, being a priest requires soberness, right? Soberness. And, and, and that word I'm using initially, literally. Remember in chapter 10, God says in the midst of this tragic story, hey, by the way, don't drink on the job. Don't drink alcohol. Don't get drunk. And in fact, in the, in the New Testament, if you're a Christian, we actually see some of these same suggestions or, uh, or sort of qualifications of leaders in the early church. Leaders in the early church should be people who are sober and not addicted to alcohol. Now, that doesn't mean they have to be teetotalers. The Bible's not saying, you know, all alcohol in all forms is is evil or sinful or anything like that, right? We just talked about Jesus turning water into wine. It just meant this calling to be a priest, to be a leader in this way, it requires focus, it requires wisdom, it requires good judgment. And, and the first things to go when you have too many drinks are those things, wisdom, focus, and good judgment, right? So leaders, priests, you need to be sober. In the alcohol sense, you need to be sober, but more broadly in the you need to take this role seriously sense. This is a deep and meaningful and sacred calling. Treat it that way. What if you woke up every morning and you prayed this prayer, God, 
You've given me the amazing calling today to stand in the doorway and to invite people into your presence, to encourage and inspire people to live as they could be and as they should be. Thank you for giving that to me. Help me to find joy and meaning in that today and give me the soberness I need to not take that lightly. Give me wisdom and focus and good judgment today as I stand in the doorway. Second, being a priest requires presence. Presence. You are carrying and embodying God's presence to others. Remember, the priests were anointed with this oil, and that's described lavishly in chapter 8. And the oil is symbolic that they had God's presence with them. And so Moses says to the other two sons who are still alive in chapter 10, Hey, you still have a job to do because you still have God's anointing oil on you. You are embodying God's presence to others. A priest is fully aware that you are carrying God's presence to others. You are welcoming others to see and experience that presence in you. Now, do you know what the opposite of presence is? Distractedness. Being distracted is losing sight of God's presence. Or maybe it's ignoring God's presence. Or it's just simply not being aware of it because there's other things that have taken your attention away. It's sort of like when the notifications go off on your phone and it grabs your attention and you'll pull your phone out and you start looking at it and you're focused on what's happening on your screen, right? And when you do that, you're not really fully present in the moment or in the place or to the people you're with anymore, right? Because you start texting back that other person who's somewhere else, or you start reading that update that you got the notification about, or you start skimming that news story, And you might have the appearance of being present, right? There's someone standing right beside you and they're talking to you and they're asking your questions and you're nodding your head along and you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they know you're not really present anymore. The greatest gift a priest, and remember, I'm talking about you and me, the greatest gift a priest can give to someone else is the gift of presence, of saying, I am here, I am with you, I am listening, and I am for you, and God is here, and God is with you, and God is listening, and God is for you. Being a priest requires soberness. It requires presence. And here's the last thing I think it requires. It requires sympathy. Think about Aaron for a second. Think about his experience on the eighth day. The the mountaintop high of everything that happened and of leading the nation in this new experience, in this new mission, and then the lowest of lows, the tragedy that he never could have imagined happens on the same day. Talk about about the worst and most incredibly difficult first day on the job someone could ever have, right? One scholar, Samuel Ballantyne, um, he writes this. He writes, thus, at the end of all this, he writes, thus ends the story of Israel's first ordination ceremony. The priests are duly consecrated. They are specifically commissioned to distinguish and to teach. And before they even begin to fulfill their responsibilities, they have already failed, been judged, and been forced to ponder deeply what it means to stand in between the demands of the holy and the frailties of the common. They stand in between. And it's hard Aaron loses his two sons that day. He knows he's not perfect. He knows there will be more failures. He knows there will be more pain in this role, in this calling. And I have to believe that Aaron, moving forward, will have a new level of sympathy and compassion and grace as he leads others 
who he knows are stumbling towards him and falling and failing and experiencing pain just like he has been. I got to believe Aaron will be a sympathetic high priest from this point on. When he teaches people about life and death, about what's important and what's not, he will speak from a place of deep personal experience. And by the way, these three traits, soberness, presence, sympathy, they characterize who Jesus was. Jesus had so much focus in his calling. You don't see Jesus intoxicated by his mission and his power and his calling. You don't see Jesus distracted by it, and you don't see Jesus taking it lightly. You see him sober and focused. You see him carrying God's presence everywhere he goes, bringing compassion and grace to everybody he comes in contact with. And then the writer of Hebrews later in the New Testament says that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. He leads us from where we are to where we could be and to where we should be. And he's not a slave driver and he's not callous. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our pain. He knows our failures. And he draws us forward with grace and sympathy never ending, never giving up patience. Jesus will fulfill the calling to be the great high priest that on many days Aaron falls short of. Now, let's wrap that up at that point today. Um, in our next message, we're going to move from chapter 10 into chapter 11, and we're actually going to cover five chapters of some of the most unbelievable verses in the Bible you will ever have read that have nothing to do with your life and everything to do with your life. I hope you'll listen next time. Thanks for listening today.